This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Hello, my beautiful wife. (laughs) Hi. Uh, We are jumping into the past this week, Caroline. Uh, We've spent, I guess, geez, over a month in, in... in the Wayback Machine, if you will, <laughs> um, you know, all the way back in the late 19th century for Jack the Ripper, and then mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more recent back in the 60s in our last episode on Marilyn Monroe. But this week, we're going all the way back before the founding of this country, aren't we, Carrie? Yeah. And for a story that is searingly relevant today. Absolutely. Last year, during the Halloween season, we did our epic three-parter on the Salem Witch Trials, And it's still one of my favorite topics we've covered to this day. Now, this week, I want to cover a similar story that we've been talking about here and there since we started the show. The story of the Connecticut witch trials. Oh, yes. We we did them first, and we did them uh, arguably scarier. (laughs) Well, I don't know about scarier, but, you know, our witch trials here in Connecticut were not as deadly, but still resulted in 11 executions over 16 years, as well as many other arrests. This is another case of people kind of forgetting about Connecticut when it comes to New England history, because while the Salem trials were the biggest and the last, we did it here first, folks. But I guess that's not something to brag about. As Connecticut state historian Walter Woodward attested, a charge of witchcraft in Connecticut meant that you would very likely die. As our main source today, we'll be using the excellent book, Connecticut Witch Trials, The First Panic in the New World by Cynthia Wolfe Boynton. And if I quote something in this episode, just to make things a little easier so I don't have to repeat it every time, it will be this book, unless I say otherwise. You got it. (laughs) Now, Sean, learning about the Connecticut Witch Trials for me actually goes back to my childhood. I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, which has a very particular history when it comes to witches. As kids, we were brought on a field trip to what's now known as Edwards Pond around Fairfield's town green. The pond itself today does not have any water in it. Rather, it is just a depression in the ground that has been grown over by grass in the centuries since its use. And what was it used for? I'm gonna go ahead and guess ducking witches. (laughs) Yes, as us fourth graders were solemnly told, it was a witch-dunking pond. Now, of course, this absolutely thrilled little Caroline, but it is a morbid prospect. A witch-dunking pond was used back in the day to test if you were... A witch! A witch. They use a similar concept in the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, though not exactly to history's reality, of course. She turned me into a (laughs) nigger. 
Suspected witches, usually women, would be thrown into or held under these ponds full of water in these times, and the test was to see if they'd float. Well, if you're being held underwater, probably not. (laughs) If they floated, she's a witch. She's a witch! If they didn't... She's a witch! No, she's exonerated, but she's also dead and drowned, so not much comfort there. Not in every case, right? But in lots of them? (laughs) Most of them, yeah. It's one of those things that is just so completely absurd, it makes you wonder how they even came up with this and why they thought it would be legitimate, but there it is. And the Edwards Pond site was used during the Connecticut Witch Trials, which we'll talk about later. So yeah, my childhood and hometown are steeped in this particularly grim bit of history, and I've had a fascination with it ever since. Maybe that's what prompted my dad to write Curse of the Fairfield Witch. Well, I, I know it is. He told me that today. <laughs> oh, and that's a book in his T.J. Jackson YA mystery series about a furious witch's spirit that comes back to haunt the town of Fairfield. Yeah, he said you actually wanted him to write a book about Salem. Well, I suggested it because uh, to that point he hadn't had a female ghost yet. So I said he, you should do a witch. You know, so obviously the natural thing to suggest is Salem. But he did me one better, and he went with the lesser-known story. The witch on the cover of his book does have a uh, dark red hair, much like myself. I thought you were going to say a dark resemblance, but but, uh, (laughs) that's kind of where you were going. (laughs) But yeah, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, I'm sure. So... For now, let's begin at the beginning of the Connecticut witch trials and the beginning of any witch trials in the 13 colonies. As Boynton writes in her book, quote, Connecticut's witch hunt was the first and most ferocious in New England, yet few know it ever occurred. So let's change that at least for however many listeners we have with us today and listening in the future. Hello, future. Um. <laughs> Do you think the people at this time were looking ahead to the future, or would that have prevented them from doing all of these things? You would hope. You would certainly hope. Because I did such a deep dive on Puritanism in New England to preface the events of the Salem witch trials in those episodes, I'm not going to repeat all the information that I presented then. But here's a good summation. It's important to remember that in 1600s pre-America, Satan and his dark allies were very, very real threats to those living a God-fearing life. Yeah, Puritans, even more so than everybody was religious at this time, right? But Puritans, even more so, really believed that demons were doing works in the real physical world. Exactly. Quote, Connecticut's first colonists, like all Puritans, believe the devil literally walked the earth, causing cow's milk to dry up, corn crops to fail, carefully made cheese to turn sour, and desperately needed rain not to fall. Puritans blame Satan for sudden sicknesses, tragic accidents, and too early snowfall. Because they didn't know what, like climate change was. (laughs) Yes. Uh, What they didn't know was that they had settled in North America at possibly the worst time maybe in recorded history to do so, when the weather was absolutely horrendous, and the so-called Little Ice Age ensured that crops often failed and starving was often the name of the game. You're also in a new new world Mm -hmm. with new diseases Mm -hmm. and new people who don't like you (laughs) uh, coming into their land. Yes. But to those who didn't understand the intricacies of climate, Satan and demonic entities were a convenient scapegoat and one they completely believed in. 
It was easier to control masses who feared that evil could be around every corner, so of course the church ministers fed into those beliefs and amped them up, often preaching that those who followed God to the letter would not be affected with any harm from those entities, while those with weaknesses or lack of faith would be punished by him. But it seems to me the preachers in these communities were the they were the leaders of the communities, too. But, but they were also probably the fiercest believers, right? Like, this sure. probably wasn't being done in bad faith. Mostly? I don't know. I mean, would you say that about any church nowadays, the Catholic church? Well, or, you know, it's. It, I, think it's, I think it's up to the individual. Right, right. But back then, they didn't have science, right? They only had God to turn to. Yeah, well. Bad things happen to good people was not in the vocabulary. If something bad happened to you, you had to have done something to bring it on yourself. It's called a victim blaming, I believe. None of it had to do with chance, at least according to doctrine. Quote, women's nature made them particularly vulnerable, Puritans believed, as proved in the first chapter of the Bible and how easily the devil, in the guise of a serpent, pulled Eve away from God by convincing her to eat the forbidden fruit of the Garden of Eden. Well, yeah, but to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows her? I mean, Adam's more easily led astray because oh. he's just like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Wasn't even a talking snake. A talking snake could get me to do almost anything. Right? I'd be so amazed. Like, he was. He just had her word for it. But I think he was kind of bewitched by what she had going on. Not a snake, <laughs> and not actually witchcraft. But again, it's convenient to hold this over a group of people you're already actively oppressing, aka women. Along with the weather issues and general superstition, those in the Connecticut colony had to deal with many of the fears and hardships that those in Salem would decades later, and they impacted these events in the same fashion. Colonists were at constant risk of losing farm animals to wolves, uh, and what meager crops they could get would often be lost to flooding from the Connecticut River. So it's just a whole ball of suck, really. In 1647 and 48, smallpox and influenza epidemics devastated the area, killing dozens of settlers. And like in Salem, there was constant fear of the Native Americans whose land had been stolen to create these new world colonies. In 1637, nine Wethersfield colonists were captured and killed by Pequot Indians, and many in the area lived in fear of another similar massacre says Carol Seeger Fuller, descendant of accused Connecticut witch Elizabeth Seeger, quote, to read the records of the Connecticut trials 300 years later is to recognize that in the 17th century, every day was Halloween. Ooh, but this sounds fun. Well, for me it would be, but not in this way. Witchcraft was the ultimate expression in Puritan eyes of being in league with evil and doing evil's bidding. And the first true witch to be tried for such in New England was Alse, so it's like A-L-S-E, uh, a.k.a. Alice Youngs of Windsor. Yeah, so I've been trying to figure this out. Do modern people call her Alice or... I think it's supposed to be pronounced Alice. Okay. So we're going to go with Alice. Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> go ask her. <laughs> there are no records of Alice's life, indictment, trial, or eventual execution known still to exist. 
According to Boynton, quote, her dark distinction as the first person in New England and the New World to be convicted and hanged for witchcraft might have been lost altogether if not for a vague but essential single line in the Journal of Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor John Winthrop Sr. from the spring of 1647. It read, one of Windsor arraigned and executed at Hartford for a witch. Yeah, now there's a book actually by a Connecticut native uh, named Beth Caruso uh, about Alice, and it's called One of Windsor for that uh, reason. It kind of fleshes out her her life. It's a novel, I assume. Uh, it, it is a fictionalized accounting. Yeah, well, I can't wait to read that one. The name of the person executed remained a mystery until 1904 when historians found an entry in the diary of Colonial Windsor's second town clerk, Matthew Grant. And it stated that, quote, May 26, 1647, Alice Youngs was hanged. So we finally had a name. It's believed that Alice was either the wife or daughter of a man named John Youngs, who purchased land in the Windsor area in 1641 and sold it two years after Alice's execution to move to Stratford, which is also in Connecticut. Now, how would Alice have been tried, since we don't really know? Well, in 17th century Connecticut, the then village of Hartford, which is now our capital city, was home to Connecticut Colony's particular court, which tried serious crimes every three months. In this particular court. (laughs) It's very Southern. The gallows used to eventually hang her were likely erected in Meeting House Square, which is the location of the old state house on Main Street in Hartford today. However, the majority of later hangings likely occurred in Hartford Colony's South Pasture, near what is today called Dutch Point. Trinity College librarian Richard Ross was quoted as saying, The spectacle was very important in colonial days, so it had to be a spot where everyone could see the hanging. And that's true of uh, public executions generally throughout history. of course. That's the way to keep people afraid of the law, of the Lord, whatever. You show them what could happen to them if they don't fall in line with the word of God and the government. And this is, I mean, you know, you, in, in a lot of human history, when public executions were happening, you were, you were lucky if you were being hanged. Not that I'm saying these. Yeah, but it's better lucky. than being flayed and broken on the wheel. Yes. We'll talk about executions Dr- sometime. Drowned. So many drownings. Well, some of them did drown, but it was during the dunking part. Now, we don't know what Alice did particularly to generate suspicion and kick off this particular witch panic, but witchcraft was a capital offense punishable by death if convicted, and that is what happened. Interestingly, if Alice was eligible to inherit the property of John Young's, you know, as some kind of heir, she would have made an even more attractive target to accusers who would have been able to take the land for the government, as with the Salem case. Yes, a lot of these kind of land grab stories with the Salem uh, trials. Mm -hmm. Guidelines were published on what to do to someone accused of witchcraft in various books and pamphlets, and I'm going to read to you some of these. Oh, this is great, because I... um... You know, I have some suspicions about one of my cohabitants. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> wow. Now, these guidelines were republished in the book The Witchcraft Delusion in Colonial Connecticut by John M. Taylor. Grounds for the examination of a witch. One, notorious defamation by a common report of the people is a ground for suspicion. Two, 
A further ground for strict examination is if a fellow witch give testimony in his examination or death that such a person is a witch. Okay, so first, if anyone says anything. Second, if a witch says something. (laughs) Especially. But this is not sufficient for conviction or condemnation. Three, if after cursing there follows death or at least mischief to ye party. Let's go to ye party. Four, if after quarreling or threatening a present mischief doth follow for parties devilishly deposed after cursing do use threatenings, and that also is a great presumption against them. So if you give why, some... Why use many word when few word do trick, as <laughs> Kevin says in the office, uh, but the opposite. Five, if a party suspected be ye son or daughter, the servant or familiar friend, near neighbors or old companions of a known or convicted witch, this also is a presumption of witchcraft. Six, if ye party suspected have devil's marks and no evident reason can be given for such mark. Wait, Carrie, can you give a reason for any of your birthmarks? I don't think they could say, well, it's skin cancer or whatever. <laughs> so I don't. Right. Uh, lastly, seven, uh, if ye party examined, be unconstant and contrary to himself in his answers. So to sum it up, at least two neighbors would have to say uh, they suspected you of being a witch. That's one. Someone already convicted of witchcraft testified that you were a witch too. This is evidence, but it can't be used to convict you. I don't know how it's different. Well, because it, it can bring you to trial. Like, it's yes. worth bringing them to trial, but now we got to look for witch marks and stuff. Um, after you threatened or argued with another person, that person suddenly got sick, or their cow died, or a candle that they had burned down their house, or whatever. Yeah, but this is, they notably live in a place where horrible things are happening to everyone all the time. Yes, and they can't explain most of it, you know? Um, A close family member or friend is suspected of being a witch. That's enough to get you accused. If you were born with an extra nipple or have an unusual mole, that could be mistaken for a witch's teat and you could be accused. And uh, lastly, while being questioned, you get angry or contradict anything you previously said. So if you get annoyed by the fact that people are accusing you of being a witch, you're a witch. I would have to say, you'd assume... 101% of these people were somewhat annoyed at being called before the trial. Yeah. Yeah. And if you spoke out against what was going on, well, guess who's the next person accused? And it didn't matter who you were. Neighbors accused neighbors. Children testified against parents. Just like in the Salem trials, it was absolute hysteria. Just kind of spread over a much longer period of time. And just like with the Salem trials, you would assume genuine hysteria mixes in with... uh, Maybe people taking advantage to settle an old grudge. Oh, yeah. And we, we'll talk about some cases where that definitely happens. The next victim of the Connecticut witch trials was Mary Johnson, who was executed in 1648, a year after Alice Young's. Only a single sentence about Johnson's witchcraft case exists in Connecticut records today. On December 7th, 1648, the court documented that The jury finds the bill of indictment against Mary Johnson that, by her own confession, she is guilty of familiarity with the devil. Johnson's was the second case tried that day. Earlier, Weathersfield woman Catherine Palmer was released due to there not being enough evidence to convict, despite her so-called unruly behavior still earning her both a warning and a fine. 
unruly behavior. Yeah, she probably talked back to her husband or something. I mean, I get, I'll take the fine, right? Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. Mary Johnson was a house servant living uh, and working in Wethersfield, Connecticut at the time of her accusation. Two years previously, she had been arrested twice for stealing with public whippings as punishment being issued both times. During one of her arrests, she was visited in prison by Hartford senior minister, Reverend, Reverend Samuel Stone, who also happened to be one of the city's founders. Stone urged Mary to confess her ill deeds, and she did. And at some point, Stone told one Reverend William Whiting what that confession entailed. And Whiting relayed this information to official enemy of the podcast and historical asshole Cotton Mather. Oh, yeah, we hate Cotton. You may remember him from the Salem trials as being a heavy influence on the hysteria and a fan of using spectral evidence in the trials, which, uh, if you remember, it's basically the claim that you were attacked or being attacked by the accuses, the, the accused witch's spirit tormenting you, which, of course, no one else could see. But it was used as evidence. Rest in piss, Cotton. So what? What? Yes. What did this? Uh, what? What was this confession about? Well, Cotton was quite intrigued by this confession, and he relayed his thoughts on it in his later book, Memorable Providences, relating to witchcrafts and possessions. And this is from 1689, less than a handful of years before the Salem trials began. So we kind of have what the confession entailed, unfortunately, through his voice. Here's what he wrote. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you imagine Cotton Mather sounding like. No, I'm just going to do it regular. Okay. Section one. There was one Mary Johnson tried at Hartford in this country upon an indictment of familiarity with the devil. She was found guilty of the same chiefly upon her own confession and condemned. Section 2. Many years are passed since her execution, and the records of the court are but short, yet there are several memorables that are found credibly related and attested concerning her. Section 3. She said that a devil was wont to do her many services. Her master once blamed her for not carrying out the ashes, and a devil did clear the hearth for her afterwards. It's a pretty nice devil. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, Her master sending her into the field to drive out the hogs... Is there any chance this was a dust devil? Oh, a dirt devil, if you will. Um, Her master sending her into the field to drive out the hogs that used to break into it. A devil would scour them out and make her laugh to see how he feased them about. I don't know what feast. Feased them about? F-E-A-Z apostrophe D. He feased them about. Sure, of course. Section four, her first familiarity with the devil came by discontent and wishing the devil to take that and the other thing and the devil to do this and that, whereupon a devil appeared to her, tendering her the best service he could do for her. Yada, yada, yada. I sold my soul to the devil. Yeah, I have to say the specificity (laughs) of the confession is damning. Section five, she confessed that she was guilty of the murder of a child and that she had been guilty of uncleanness with men and devils. Now, some people think this might a kind of allusion to an abortion like she had had premarital sex or she had had some sort of affair she had gotten pregnant and i mean they had old school ways of trying to terminate a pregnancy back then so maybe this is what she was saying if she said this at all is there historical or archaeological evidence for that or is that just kind of back projecting no i mean people have 
people have had abortions all of human history. Yes, I know. Yeah, they had stuff to do it in like ancient Egypt. Yeah. But she also and such. But she also could have said she murdered a child. She could have said either or she could have said none of it because this is Cotton Mather and he sucks. Uh, section six. In the time of her imprisonment, the famous Mr. Samuel Stone was at great pains to promote her conversion unto God and represent unto her, both her, her misery and remedy, the success of which was very desirable and considerable. So he's like jerking this guy off. Uh, section seven. She was by most observers judged very penitent both before and at her execution. And she went out of the world with many hopes of mercy through the merit of Jesus Christ. Being asked what she built her hopes upon, she answered on those words, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And those, there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And she died in a frame extremely to the satisfaction of them that were spectators of it. Our God is a great forgiver. Wow. Um, but, but Cotton Mather and the rest of these guys would have all thought that he would have wanted to present this in the best way possible, the most God is great and, and women are evil kind of ways. Right, but Puritans took kind of a Calvinist view of like, God's already decided who's going to heaven and hell when you're born, right? Yeah, but you still have to be good, so I don't even know. It's very bad. To prove you're in the club. It's very circular. Some tellings of Mary's story state that she was pregnant when convicted. Her execution delayed until her son was born. Uh, a son that was adopted by the jailer's son, Nathaniel, until the child turned 21. Now, there's no evidence, as far as I can find, to back this up, but there's none to say it didn't happen. Wikipedia, it seems, has decided to favor the side of she was pregnant. That's what it says on the witch trials page, so I don't know. But we're moving along. Of the first seven people tried for witchcraft in Connecticut, six were executed by hanging. Unfortunately, we've already passed the one person who was let off the hook at this point, Catherine Palmer. So let's go on to the next unfortunate victims, this time a married couple, John and Joan Carrington of Wethersfield. I think this like would have been us. Like we both would have been done in the witch trials, I think, unfortunately. I, I'm pretty good at going along to getting to get along if I have to. Oh, I don't know. I think that mouth gets you. It's very John Proctor, aside from all of his like... Oh, I crappy stuff. Like he did some crappy stuff, but like the speaking, he was he was too sassy. And if if they came after me, yeah, you, you, you you'd I'd be, be done. speaking truth to power, and I'd be you'd done. be done. Um, I thought you meant because I'd be out there walking around in Crocs and uh, like a frock coat. <laughs> well, here eccentric. you are eccentric. Yes, the Carringtons were the first of what would eventually tally seven married couples to be accused during this whole period. And one of only two couples to both be hanged. Both were charged with familiarity with Satan and works above the course of nature in February 1651 by the particular court in Hartford. John, like Mary Johnson before him, had also previously gotten into legal trouble two years earlier for selling a gun to an Indian. He had been fined. That was a specific charge. Yes. He had been fined 10 pounds, which was no small sum in those days. I don't have a conversion, but it's, I don't know, it's probably a lot. It sounds, it sounds like a lot. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, it's a shilling. And then like a shilling is $5,000 nowadays, you know? <laughs> that's not, she's not saying that's actually. <laughs> no, it's not. But you know what I mean? It seems clear that those who had already been targets of the legal system were made much easier scapegoats during this time of hysteria because people already knew their history. 
We have no records of the Carrington trial, but we do know that the news spread. They were mentioned at another later witch trial in Boston that same year. In this case, Mary Parsons was the one accusing her husband, Hugh, of witchcraft during a dispute with neighbors. The accusation was brought to court soon after, and Mary suffered a mental breakdown and accused herself of being a witch. What? And she said that she was responsible for the death of her five-month-old baby. She accused herself or she confessed? Uh, she she confessed. You've got me picturing she's pointing a <laughs> finger at court. There's another witch! No, no, she confessed. Now, it seems clear to me that this is probably a severe case of postpartum guilt and depression. You know, your child dies, you feel responsible even though you have nothing to do with it. But her words were taken seriously in the trial. During the hearing, Mary told the magistrates that she had begun to suspect Hugh of being a witch when he expressed sympathy at hearing the news of the Carrington case, not knowing that he was soon to follow. Unlike the Carringtons, both Hugh and Mary Parsons were acquitted of witchcraft, but Mary was found guilty of murdering her infant and sentenced to death anyway. However, she died in prison before she could reach that point. I mean, if you lose a child, first of all, you lose a lot of children at this time, but also you in some ways probably are blaming yourself more than you're exactly. uh, than you should logically because um isn't it wasn't your child taken because you sinned presumably I, I mean it's all very circular so john and joan carrington they're executed next in 1651 we come to the first of the two biggest names i would say in the connecticut witchcraft trials goody bassett of stratford Certainly the two biggest names down here in Fairfield County are part of the state. Um, Goody Bassett was in my hometown of Stratford, and she was kind of the um, fun local boogeyman growing up. You know, don't go out there. Goody Bassett will get you if the melon heads don't. Right. Now, there are very few surviving records of Bassett's case. In fact, we don't even know her first name. She is known as Goody or Goodwife, which is pretty much the era's version of Mrs. Uh, the folks at the Stratford Historical Society believe that her name was Sarah, but they're not totally sure. Well, that's because one in every three people was Sarah. So it's a pretty good bet. <laughs> it's that or Mary. Or Elizabeth. In the records of the New Haven colony, there is a mention that the governor, Mr. Cullick, and Mr. Clark are desired to go down to Stratford to keep court upon the trial of Goody Bassett for her life. And this is from May 1651. It also says, because good wife Bassett when she was condemned. Okay. Now, Hold on. Okay. Because that's the end of the sentence? Yes. So according to the website Damned ct.com which we've mentioned before it's a really fabulous resource for everything weird connecticut this apparently means that she gave a confession probably under extreme duress as was the practice so she confessed and this is like all the detail we have about her life yes, right unfortunately Goody Bassett was likely hanged from crude gallows erected near what's now the West Broad Street exit off of I-95 in the area of Sterling Park and the old Congregational Burying Ground. Do you know where that is, Sean? I sure do, yeah. yeah. In what few records we do have of Bassett's order, we know that while she maintained her innocence throughout the trial, her fortitude was shaken as she walked to the gallows to meet her death. One historian wrote, 
bursten from the procession of magistrates, ministers, and all the dignitaries of the neighborhood, the unfortunate woman threw herself upon a large rock by the roadside. She clutched it so desperately that, when at length she was forcibly detached, bloody marks like fingerprints were seen upon it. So I would be hysterical too, knowing the uh, torturous death I was about to endure. Oh, that was the that was p- sort of part of the legend when I was a kid. Although I think the way kids told it, it was that one of the rocks down there had scratch marks on it from her fingernails. I've definitely heard that. I feel like there's still like a rock that people point to as the Goody Bassett rock, right? Yes, although her fingernail scratches are not actually in it. <laughs> well, one would presume. We'll have to go take a picture of this rock and throw it on Instagram. If you'd like to honor Bassett and are in this area this Halloween season, you could always visit Goody Bassett's Ice Cream on Main Street in Stratford, named for the victim herself. I hear they have a lovely pumpkin flavor. I've never had anything bad there. It's really good. <laughs> Hand-churned ice cream. Very nice. Mm-hmm. The second big name in the Connecticut Witch Trials history is Goody Knapp of Fairfield. And of course, the victim I heard the most about uh, growing up in the same town. Now, was she similarly kind of a Fairfield boogeyman? No. No, we didn't have like a, a witch legend, unfortunately. I wish I sh- would have started it, but... <laughs> no, but <laughs> surely we were unfairly maligning poor Goody Bassett. Yeah, but, you know, it's still fun for you as a kid. We also don't know Nap's first name, but we do know when the accusations first began. Knapp first came under suspicion during the trial of Goody Bassett and was bravely defended by her neighbor, Mary Staples, who furiously told authorities that Knapp had no more teats than any other woman. So you go, Mary. Stood up. Women standing up for women, man. It's usually two. She had no more than any other woman? Yeah, she had the two, you know. Now, interestingly, if you're at all knowledgeable about local history, and why would you be, um, there are a lot of famous Connecticut history names embroiled in this entire story. Now, I don't know if one thing came before the other. It's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. But there is a main road in Fairfield called Knapps Highway and a high school in nearby Westport called Staples. So it does go to show that At the time, these were small towns, everyone knew each other, and no one was immune from accusations, even if you hailed from original settling families whose names still adorn both street signs and dozens of colonial graves to this day. Speaking of which, in Fairfield's case, Roger Ludlow was involved in these trials, wasn't he? One of the magistrates was (laughs) Roger Ludlow, known today as a respected founder of the Connecticut, Fairfield, and Norwalk colonies. Perfect timing, Sean. He gives his name to one of the high schools in town. Yes. Two schools, actually, are named after him in Fairfield. My old rivals, Ludlow Middle School and Ludlow High, where all the rich kids went. You were rich in love, Carrie. I I had a lovely middle-class family. During her trial, one of the questioners asked Goody Knapp to speak before the devil silenced her forever. Knapp snapped back, Take heed, the devil have not you, for you cannot tell how soon he might be your companion. The truth is you would have me say that goodwife Staples is a witch, but I have sins enough to answer for that already, and I will not add this to my condemnation. I know nothing by goodwife Staples, and I hope she is an honest woman. Better than so many, better than, you know, arguably, you would hope you would go basically to your death with yes. that with that kind of uh, bravery I, 
I don't think I could ever bring someone down with me, but I probably would have confessed to not get hanged. A lot of people. I mean, that worked in Salem, the confessing to not get hanged. I don't think it really worked here. Well, we just heard of one who confessed and was immediately hanged. Yeah. I think in the Salem case, I would have said, yeah, I'm a witch. Sorry. And then I would have like moved somewhere else. Right. Because you're going to be ostracized heavily afterward. Yeah. But it's better than being dead. But it's pretty moving that uh, both of these women really stood by each other and the truth, despite certainly knowing the likely consequences of those actions. Knapp was indeed convicted, and Ludlow would be present at her execution in May 1651. Many believe the site of the execution is now in the present-day Black Rock section of what is now Bridgeport on Fairfield Avenue, not too far from where we're recording this podcast tonight. Ooh. <laughs> At the time, this area was an empty lot between a house and a mill. We'll quote R.G. Tomlinson's witchcraft prosecution chasing the devil in Connecticut for what happened at the trial. At the execution, Goody Knapp asked to speak with Roger Ludlow and descended the gallows steps to whisper in his ear before she was hanged. As soon as the body was cut down, Mary Staples rushed forward and demanded to be shown the witch's teats. When no one responded, she seized the body and stripped away the clothes and tumbled the body up and down, pulling on the teats as if to pull them off. She called to goodwives Odell and Lockwood and others who had been on the committee that searched for witch marks to come and look at the body. The women refused to come, and Mary continued her tirade, wringing her hands and swearing, "'Will you say these are witches' teats? Here are no no more teats than I myself have, or any woman, if you but search your body.'" So she's she's going ham wait, after is, her friend is murdered. Wait, it was the last one, right? Where another woman said she's got no more teeth. No, than- same woman. She she's saying. Oh, this is to you're using everybody. this as evidence. Fuck your evidence. Oh, and they so they that's why they tried to get this woman to turn her in. Mm-hmm. Staples. They tried to get them to turn against each other. They wouldn't, even though. Okay, so a few days later, Roger Ludlow attested that at the foot of the gallows when she apparently came down to talk to him before her hanging, Goody Knapp told him that Mary Staples was a witch and makes a trade of lying. Oh, Jesus. Well, why wouldn't you say that publicly if you were really saying that? Yes. And now listen, I don't know if this was maybe a final desperate ploy of naps to avoid the gallows knowing she was literal seconds away from death she's trying to throw a hail mary but they already gave her the chance well yeah and i think it may have just been a lie on ludlow's part to try and further incriminate the other woman one who had stood up against him and the other magistrates publicly on trial oh to me that seems obviously what's happening there well indeed staple's husband thomas was so pissed at ludlow for proclaiming this statement despite no other witnesses hearing it that he sued ludlow for slander the fucking balls on this one during that trial a witness named mr davenport told the court that he believed the charges to be completely untrue and that they were spoken by ludlow out of malice to get back at her for not saying that goody knapp was guilty Oh my god, do these people get killed? Wildly, despite his huge name in this area, the judges agreed, and Ludlow was ordered to pay Thomas and Mary Staples 10 pounds for calling Mary a liar and another 10 for calling her a witch. Well, since witch is a is a uh, death sentence, I think that one should have been a higher fine. Thomas literally was like, "Get my wife's name out a- your a- fucking mouth." mouth. Will Smith. Ludlow also. It's a great Will Smith. 
Ludlow also had to pay the court five pounds for trial expenses, so he's paying 25 in damages. Mary, for her part, was exonerated, so it's kind of a heartwarming turn of events in this grim story. And by your conversion before, 25 pounds is like, I don't it's know, like a million a baj- a bajillion dollars. I don't know. <laughs> Ludlow was apparently so pissed off by this that he huffed out of Fairfield and left for Virginia, taking all the colony's records with him. So maybe he's the reason why we don't have complete accounts of these early trials. Oh, you, you think he might have just wanted to uh, abscond with some yes. of that information? Yes. Uh, uh, there are bad, uh, I agree with you, by the way, but there are bad records uh, from this time. Of course. Right? Yes. But still, I never liked Ludlow anyway. Whatever. After the break, we'll discuss the rest of the Connecticut witch trials, including why they took a break for almost three decades before ending with a handful of final accusations and arrests the very same year of Salem's witch hysteria. Go Mustangs! Absolutely. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In the first segment, we covered the first, I don't know, half or so of the people accused and executed of, well, there's a lot more accusations to come, Terry. Um, But we have gotten through, I think, pretty close to half of the executions that happened here in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, Really lethal run in those first seven accusations. Six of seven people executed. And um, I I know things got less lethal, but also the number of accusations only steps up from here. Yeah. Next on trial, we have Lydia Gilbert, a resident of Windsor. Gilbert was charged in 1654 with killing a man named Henry Stiles with witchcraft. Um, Even though someone had already been convicted of the death, which had happened three years previously. Oh, so it was a murder someone else had committed without witchcraft. Well, okay. In November 1651, Henry Stiles and his neighbor, Thomas Allen, were taking part in a practice drill with the Connecticut Colony Militia. And you can see where this is going. Thomas's gun accidentally discharged, not unusual for the crappy firearms of the day, and unfortunately hit and killed Henry, who was marching in front of him. As Thomas had not properly locked the trigger, he confessed that he was guilty of his friend's death. I'm sure he felt awful. Yeah, that's probably why he confessed. He was convicted of homicide by misadventure, which reads to me as accidental manslaughter, Yep, and was fined 20 pounds, so I don't know, a zillion pence or something, (laughs) um, for sinful neglect and careless carriage and put on the colonial version of parole for a year. Wow, so Roger Ludlow paid the equivalent of killing a man Mm -hmm. for his slander in the last segment. As he should. Um, Now, his fine was refunded when Lydia Gilbert was accused of the crime three years later. But how could Gilbert be accused of the same death? Well, if we dive into land and probate records, and why wouldn't we? (laughs) We can see that Lydia and the deceased, Henry, did have a connection. 
In January 1644 or 45, Henry's brother Francis sold farmland to Lydia's husband, Thomas, and Thomas and the Gilberts apparently lived on and operated the farm together. When Henry died, it became clear that Henry owed the Gilberts money, though we don't know if the families had a positive or negative relationship. We don't know if they were like, eh, don't worry about it, or if things were really contentious. We don't know what evidence was shown at trial to connect Lydia Gilbert to Henry's death specifically, but in one of the saddest details of this case, it apparently came down to Lydia's adult son, Jonathan, to arrest her himself. At the time of her trial, Jonathan was the marshal in Hartford and likely would have been tasked with reading her the charges against her and taking her to the prison house. And he did. Yeah. And it's like, another guy couldn't do it? Like, they had to make him do it? It's awful. (laughs) Gilbert was hanged in 1654, but her legacy does live on. Her descendant, Noah Webster, published Webster's American Dictionary of the English English Language in 1828, known today as Merriam-Webster's. Yes, and worth noting that since he was from Connecticut, all of our pronunciations are the ones that are in the dictionary, so we don't have an accent and speak American English correctly. So, suck it, America. (laughs) Next accused was Elizabeth Godman of New Haven, one of a handful of Connecticut colonists who would be tried for witchcraft multiple times. Godman, or possibly Goodman, lived in the house of New Haven Colony Deputy Governor Stephen Goodyear. Wait, he might have been Goodman Goodman? No, Elizabeth Godman, or Goodman. But if she had a husband. Oh, he would have he, he would have been Goodman Goodman Goodman, yes. <laughs> Mr. Mister. She first drew attention to herself in 1653 by openly questioning the interrogation tactics of the witch prosecutors, saying, why do they provoke them? Why do they, they not let them into the church? She also made the mistake of daring neighbors to accuse her of being a witch. And the neighbors were like, bet. And they accused her twice in two years, first in 1653 and again in 1654. She literally dared them? Was it a triple dog? What was the situation? (laughs) She seems like a Sarah Good type person, which I don't expect any of you to remember her from our Witch Trials episodes, but she was kind of a... she's a groovy lady who I want to know. No, that's Bridget Bishop. Sarah Good was a homeless woman who was known to be very ornery and um, disliked. Less groovy. Sure. According to neighbors, Godman often muttered to herself and she walked from house to house, scolding them and announcing that should the devil decide to come suck one of her nipples, she would not let him. Strong and brave. And I would be like, weird thing to say, Liz. Weird thing to come out and say. It's uh, the lady doth protest too much. You know what I mean? Yes. The neighbors did take a he who smelt it dealt it approach. (laughs) to her proclamations and figured that she was meeting with the devil. Maybe teats were being sucked and that led to her being examined in 1653. Yeah, I don't know about you guys. I would never, if the devil were to offer me his teat, I personally would never. No, it's her teat. If he, if he came being like, can I suck that teat? She was like, I wouldn't allow that. I don't know. Not even if you looked like Chris Evans, I wouldn't allow that. Did you guys hear the devil looks like Chris Evans? <laughs> anyway. Anyway, definitely wouldn't give him my tea, but you know, whatever. 
So testimonies against Godman, including that Elizabeth was buried married to Habamok, the evil mystical giant who lay under the hills of what's now known as Sleeping Giant State Park in Hamden. Now, to be fair, Carrie, that is a serious accusation. It's kind of a bitchin' accusation. I want to be accused of being married to a mythical giant. Can we get Habamok in to testify? That's the question. (laughs) Can we get him on the podcast? Oh, (laughs) Habamok, give us a ring. We we (laughs) want you here, buddy. Um... Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to piss off a giant's wife if I if I really believed in this. I don't think I would make this accusation if I really believed it was happening. Yeah, there's some kind of a Jotun underneath the, uh, the, the mountain. She was also accused of casting a fierce look upon Mr. Goodyear that caused him to swoon. That when no one else was around, she routinely spoke aloud to the devil, which how would they when know? no one was around. And that she was responsible for bewitching her young neighbor, Hannah Lamberton, and causing her to hear noises, feel pinches, and suffer from both burning and freezing sensations that caused her to shriek in pain. And so this is a, just a little girl trying to kill someone for fun? It's a spectral evidence thing, yeah. A reverend, Mr. Hook, stated that Elizabeth had an unaccountable way of always knowing what had been done at secret church meetings, and it also begged for beer at his house, asking for a fresh pour when he offered her what I guess was an old batch. So she went to the house. She said, can I have some beer? He brought some. She's like, no, I would like a fresh one, please. And then he gave it to her, I guess. But she was still like kind of cranky about it. The next morning, Hook's beer was found to be hot, sour, and ill-tasting though it was fresh the night before, which just sounds like an IPA to me. Well, why is it hot? I don't know. I mean, or, or more more to the point, I guess, why would it have been cold? They don't have refrigerators, right? It's you, You're just using ice, I guess. Yeah, so he's using the crime of bad beer against her. And others spoke of how she had an uncanny way of knowing what was in people's pockets. So she's got like... Uncle magic, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say. So her, her. You have a coin behind your ear. Where's. And got your nose, you know. Justin Willman would have been dead. Oh, ne- yes. Netflix's Justin Willman would have been dead. Oh, yes. If they saw Irish step dancing, they would have murdered everyone. <laughs> Despite all the testimony against her, Elizabeth Godman was released with a warning to keep to herself and to stay away from her neighbors, which I'm sure she needed no guidance to do. We won't go too deep into the next stories, but I'm going to go through them quickly. Nicholas Bailey and his wife in New Haven were accused in 1655. They were acquitted, but ordered to leave Connecticut. William Meeker of New Haven was exonerated and awarded damages for slander in 1657. Good for them. Elizabeth Garlick or Gerlick of East Hampton was acquitted in 1658. Saybrook's Margaret and Nicholas Jennings. Jennings is another big surname around these parts. Um, They were released with a warning in 1661. Judith Varlet of Hartford was believed to have been released with a warning in 1662. And Goody Ayers of Hartford was accused but fled from Connecticut with her husband, also apparently accused in 1662. That brings us, sadly, to the next execution. We have kind of a mini hysteria during this time called the Hartford Witch Panic of 1662 to 1663. Some in this panic have already escaped with their lives. We just mentioned them, but others would not be so lucky. 
These accusations of witchcraft were leveled against Mary and Andrew Sanford, a married couple from Hartford. Andrew was eventually set free, but Mary was sentenced to death at the gallows. The charges against her were familiarity with Satan and having acted, and also come <clears throat> come to the knowledge of secrets in a preternatural way beyond the course of nature to the great disturbance of several members of the Commonwealth. Do you know Satan? <laughs> I mean, I'm familiar with Satan. <laughs> to the gallows! <laughs> Uh, Even after her death, Mary would be named in a trial the following year as one of several witches who would meet in the woods for orgies of evil. Only of evil? Or like, are they also traditional orgies? I think they were described as bacchanals. So, yeah. There's there's a lot of teat sucking going on. This is uh, season two of True Blood. Yes. The next married couple accused would both be sentenced to the gallows. Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith of Hartford were tried in 1662 after an accusation by their young neighbor, Anne Cole, who suffered from strange fits with such extremely violent body motions. Family members and community leaders testified that while Anne was unconscious, demons would speak through her and identify local witches. So it seems pretty close to what went on with the Salem accusers. Yeah, but this this also, it sounds like... doesn't it sound like this little girl's witchier than the, the people who are being accused? Well, it sounds like she has seizures of some sort, but they only seem to happen when others were present for the performance. She's a spiritual medium who demons talk through. She She's a witch, if, <laughs> if anyone is in this story. Rebecca Greensmith was the main target of the accusations from neighbors who called her a lewd, ignorant, and considerable aged woman. Nathaniel, for his part, had been previously found guilty of stealing wheat, lying, and assault. However, this time, he was initially found innocent and set free. Rebecca went to prison, where she was um, likely trying to be spared the gallows when she confessed to being a witch and to being part of a coven of witches that included her husband. This coven danced and drank in the woods by her home, she claimed, and this is where she had sex with the devil. Though she had not yet given her soul to Satan, she planned to as part of a merry meeting on Christmas Day. Though Nathaniel begged her not to implicate him and said he would take care of her two daughters from a previous marriage if she was executed, Rebecca decided that both of them would be going down with the ship and named him as a witch. A month month later, both greensmiths were hanged. So he almost got a... If it wasn't for that, those meddling kids, he almost got away with it. I just want you to know I would go to the gallows without naming you as a witch. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> Duh. Just so we're clear. <laughs> the last execution, but not the last victim, of the Connecticut witch trials would be Mary Barnes in January 1663. Though we don't know how or why Mary was accused, she may have been named by someone involved in the other Hartford witch panic cases. She spent three weeks in jail before being hanged. Lisa Johnson, the executive director of the Stanley Whitman House Museum, said, quote, Two of the things we know for sure about Mary was that she was illiterate and a servant. We also know that at some point she was accused of adultery, another capital offense at the time, and she was not accepted as a member of the Farmington Church, which means its congregation saw her as unworthy. She also earlier accused someone else of witchcraft, so all those things combined would have put her on the witch radar. 
The Hartford Witch Panic continued in 1663 with accusations leveled against Elizabeth and John Backleach of Wethersfield, James Wakeley of Hartford, Elizabeth Seeger of Hartford, and Judith Varlet, possibly again of Hartford, all escaped an appointment with the gallows and none were killed. I'm going to do a speed run now of all the intermittent period accusations since none ended with executions and we're trying to do this baby in one part. Yeah, there, so. are, there are 45 <laughs> total, right, recorded? Right. So. 1664, Mary and Ralph Hall of Setauket were acquitted. 1665, Elizabeth Seeger of Hartford was accused a third time and was convicted, but the verdict was overturned by the governor. John Brown of New Haven was released with a warning. Hannah Griswold of Saybrook was exonerated and awarded damages for slander. Was the governor at this time John Winthrop Jr. in Connecticut? Might have been. I know he was at some point during this time. I don't know this exactly. William Graves of Stamford avoided trial. 1667, Catherine Palmer of Wethersfield was put on trial a second time and fled to Rhode Island, which seems like a smart choice. 1669, Catherine Harrison of Wethersfield got a hung jury and took that as her cue to move to New York. Sarah Dibble of Stamford was accused by her husband, but no action was taken. I hope that marriage didn't uh, end awkwardly. Um, these folks who are moving, you'll notice many of them are not moving to Massachusetts. Oh, no. They New are... York and Rhode Island were the religiously liberal places to yes, be. Yes, not Puritan places. Mm-hmm. 1673, Goody Messenger of Windsor was exonerated and awarded damages. 1678, Mary Burr, another big local name, of Wethersfield had the same result. 1689, Goody Bowden of New Haven also exonerated and awarded damages. And all that brings us to 1692, the same year that began the Salem Witch Trials over in Massachusetts, and the beginning of the so-called Fairfield Witch Panic of 1692. So let's go back to my hometown and check out what the fuss is all about. The hysteria in Fairfield erupted almost simultaneously with the one in Salem and began in a similar way, with a teenage girl and the accusations she put forth. The girl was 17-year-old Catherine Branch, a French servant employed by the Westcott family living with them in what is today Westcott Cove in Stamford. It's a section of Stamford, I guess. Catherine was said to be picking herbs when she began to feel a pricking sensation in her chest and fell to the ground, convulsing, sobbing, and swallowing her tongue. We know today those are symptoms of epilepsy, but back in the 1600s, those were symptoms of bewitchment. Soon Catherine began to have visions of cats speaking to her, asking her to attend a banquet with them and promising gifts if she followed them. If not, they threatened to throw rats at her and kill her. Well, um, this does... I think I'm going to go to the cat banquet if it's between that and rats and dying. Being pelted with rats? Yeah, no, it sounds great going to the cat banquet. But this, (laughs) if these were things she was really experiencing and you're living at that time, this does feel like witchcraft, right? Mm -hmm. And it also feels very Black Phillip in The Witch, the movie The Witch. Three weeks into these episodes, she began to see the figure of a woman wearing a hood and apron standing outside of the house and calling out, A witch! A witch! It's like the scariest thing is just a witch. A witch! (laughs) 
Then she saw a hag-like old woman standing outside dressed in a coat made of homespun wool, bearing two firebrands on her forehead. She also saw some familiar faces like Fairfield woman Mercy Disbro, whose family had disagreements with Catherine's employers, the Westcotts. Very convenient. Uh, That is quite convenient. So this is a dream she's having? Some sort of vision, I guess. She She knew that she was seeing Mercy in the context of being a witch. Fairfielders were skeptical at first that witchcraft was befalling Catherine. After all, they hadn't had a local accusation in decades. But Daniel Westcott, Catherine's employer and a sergeant in the local militia... Who didn't like this family. Yeah. He insisted that she was indeed being bewitched and that the culprits should be prosecuted. Charges were filed against Mercy Disbro, another woman named Elizabeth Clawson, whose family was also in disagreements with the Westcotts, and a woman named Goody Hipshod. At trial, Elizabeth testified that she and Daniel had argued several years earlier, but Mercy herself said she'd never even heard of anyone named Catherine Branch. Catherine was brought into the room at this point, and records say that she immediately fainted. So again, we're seeing shades of the Salem trials here. When she woke, she looked at Mercy and said, I'm sure it was her, and began convulsing. No witch marks were found on Mercy, but a wart was found on one of Elizabeth's arms, along with something that apparently resembled a one-inch diameter teat near her genitals. I'm sure it was probably just a friggin' sore or something. Like, everyone's all messed up. It's colonial times. And that's just not where nipples are. Well, teats could be anywhere on your body. Like, witch marks. Teats can be anywhere on... Well, on an animal's belly, I guess, but but on humans, they're really in the one place. Haven't like aren't they sometimes on your back or something? If you have like an extra one, I've never. I don't know. I thought. I I guess I I, I when I think third nipple, I just think of Scaramanga in the Golden Gun oh, or Marky I've, Mark, yeah, and, and those Mark are both Wahlberg. chest-based. Yeah, uh, I think nipples. you can possibly have it on your back, but I don't know. I think it might just be a torso thing. Let's not talk more about teats yet. Um, yet <laughs> there's going to be more teat talk. Hashtag teat talk. Both women were jailed and at Mercy's request were given the water test, which I assume means that they were dunked probably at Edward's Pond. At Mercy's request. While Mercy was sure that she would sink, but both she and Elizabeth floated like corks, even when men tried to push them under the water. And if you remember from earlier, floating means you're a witch. The women were urged to confess. Um, while Elizabeth had many defenders, Mercy sadly had none, and many people came forward to speak against her while she was in jail, saying things like she'd killed their cows and bewitched a pregnant woman so that her infant would be born sick. Even though the women were in jail, Catherine's fits continued, and at least four more women were accused of being witches. There was Goody Miller, who fled to live in New York, Mary Staples for a second time, and Hannah and Mary Harvey of Fairfield. With this latter three, it's unsure whether they were ever prosecuted or whether they were just accused. Do you think Mercy was really epileptic or is all of this? She might have had genuine epilepsy and then just kept on like playing it up because maybe she was freaked out about what had happened to her because she I mean, if she had like a seizure and she didn't understand what was going on, she could have just played it up. You can't control when you have seizures, so she could have just been acting. And then her employer is just like, you know who loves cats? (laughs) I'm not sure what happened to Goody Hipshod, which was the third of these first women to be accused, but she's 
nowhere else in the story, so I'm sure she just got out free. Um, hey, we haven't run into a lot of people named like Faith in God Reynolds and, and stuff like just that. Just Cotton Mather. That's Well, his father's Increase. Yep. So that's a dumb name. So by the 1600s, have the Puritans moved on from those names? Or Oh, no, no. This is the same time as Salem, and we found plenty of those names. So, so we might have just been a little bit more normal with the names in Connecticut? Probably. In September 1692, Mercy and Elizabeth were brought before a grand jury for trial. A second bodily search of Mercy resulted in the finding of a suspicious growth on Mercy and nothing on Elizabeth, except for the comment that her body was made differently. So she was built different, Sean. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like a compliment to me. Oh, I, I hope it means she had like a killer ass or something like that. Several of the testimonies against the women went as follows. One, several years earlier, after Mrs. Abigail Westcott and Elizabeth Clausen had had an argument, the eldest Westcott daughter had become ill, screaming at night and claiming to see a pig in her bedroom. Pig? Yeah. Two, Abigail Westcott also said that Elizabeth had thrown a rock at her and called her a proud slut. Three, a young man stated Mercy once declared that if she had but strength, she would tear him in pieces and later attacked him in a dream. Four, another young man claimed that while having dinner at Mercy's home, he had begun to hallucinate, seeing the roasted pig entree both with and without skin. I think they call that just carving the meat, <laughs> but whatever. During dinner, he and Mercy also agreed about a Bible scripture, and when on his way home, he could not make his horse walk a straight line. But I think maybe it just got into the ale. They agreed on a Bible verse? Disagreed. Oh, disagreed. Mm -hmm. Some testimonies were on the behalf of the defense, though. Two men said they witnessed one of Catherine's fits while at the Westcott house, and when they threatened to use a sharp knife to bleed her if they continued, the fits promptly stopped. So it's basically like John Proctor when Mary Warren was having fits, and he was like, I'm going to beat you if you don't stop. And she was like, oh, I'm good. The was, witches are gone. Wasn't that John's answer to uh, most issues? Yes. Yes. Uh, another woman named Sarah Ketchum testified that she didn't believe the fits were real and that herself and a man named Thomas Austin had conducted a test to prove it. Now, I love this story. Their test went like this. Thomas told Catherine that when a person is bewitched, having a naked sword held over his or her head will cause the person to laugh him or herself to death. When he held a sword over Catherine's head, she broke out into uncontrollable laughter. Later, when a sword was held over Catherine's head without her knowing, so I guess she didn't see it, there was no laughter or any change in her expression. Sarah Ketchum also testified that she heard Daniel Westcott say that he could make Catherine do tricks, and another woman claimed to have seen Catherine bury her head into a pillow to hide her laughter when Abigail Westcott began to cry over Catherine being bewitched. Let me say something about their um, little prank there with the sword. I think it's very smart. It's science. <laughs> exactly. That it's is a, a hypothesis. That is a scientific experiment. Mm -hmm. Probably the only one conducted in, in this colony at that <laughs> time. With all of this conflicting testimony, the jury was unable to reach a verdict, and Elizabeth and Mercy were sent back to jail, with a second trial resuming a month later. More witches marks were found at this point, which honestly, really, it just sounds like one of them had like a loose vulva lip. Like she had like a flappy lip. 
which is a totally normal thing. They, they got into that much description of the... They wit- sure did. Um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, you don't have to. <laughs> okay. Elizabeth was finally found not guilty and ordered to be released from jail. Mercy, however, was found guilty of familiarity with Satan, along with conspiracy to impute in a preternatural way the bodies and estates of divers of his majesty's subjects. An appeal was submitted on Mercy's behalf, and she was granted a stay of execution until the next general court met in Hartford. So I assume this is something like going to the Supreme Court back in the day. There's the particular court, and then you got the general court. A group of clergymen also wrote a lengthy statement denouncing the methods used at her trial, including the spectral evidence that was so controversial in the Salem trials. She gained an additional ally in the powerful politician, minister, and physician, Reverend Gershom Bulkley of Glastonbury, who felt that the people of Connecticut were being illegally and unfairly governed. Now, how deep are they into those Salem trials at this point? Is, is this happening it's concurrently? still the first half, because they ended in 1693. This is still 1692. Um, Gershom Bulkley used Mercy's case in his book, Will and Doom, or the Miseries of Connecticut by and under a usurped and arbitrary power. His statement, along with those by fellow magistrates, led to Mercy being pardoned. So this statement is as follows. I cannot understand of anything brought in against Mercy of any great weight to convict a person of witchcraft, yet some of the court were very zealous. The execution suspended till next general court is the wisest act they could have done since the revolution. The reprieve is better than the judgment because it prevents a mischief. These cases are enough to prove that not only our estates and bodies, but our lives also are at the disposition, not of the king and his laws, but of this pretending usurping corporation and in what hazard they area. Our foundations being thus removed and out of course, what can the righteous do? It is a great scandal. Uh, these Puritans, you get the sense that they would write something and then look back at it and go, you know, all right, whether it makes it make sense or not, I got to add more words. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mercy would be the last person convicted and sentenced to death for witchcraft in Connecticut, but she was not the last accused. So again, she was pardoned. Winifred and Winifred Benham a mother and daughter from Wallingford, were also accused after this. Name so nice, you use it twice. But they were released on insufficient evidence. And this was the the last official witchcraft trial to ever take place in Connecticut. Sarah Clother and Goody Brown of Colchester were both accused in 1713, but no action was taken. So Salem was really the last gasp of the witch hysteria. About a decade later, in 1724, the official final accusation was made against Sarah Spencer, also of Colchester, and again, no action was taken. So it seems that we had finally lost our taste for murdering suspected witches at this point. Well, and with the, it's, you can see that as the century goes on and the accusations speed up, the convictions go way down. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And uh, no one was killed during the Fairfield witchcraft panic. Right. So, and even that's different. <laughs> during the tail end of those earlier, that kind of murder spree of like, like after seven or eight people had been executed, it seemed like a lot of the testimony in these trials was becoming people going like, this isn't good. Yes. We shouldn't do this. She has two nipples. <laughs> and only two. In 
1750, an updated list of capital offenses was released by the Connecticut General Assembly, and witchcraft notably was removed from the list. And that's really for the best, because in a few short decades, we'd have the issue of revolution to reckon with, so we didn't need witchcraft in there making everything more confusing. Oh, I thought you were going to say in a few short um, decades, they would have vampire panics to worry about. (laughs) Well, yeah, down the line. The Connecticut witch trials uh, still reverberate in this area today from children being brought on morbid school trips to see empty ponds to uh, the award-winning children's novel The Witch of Blackbird Pond being published in 1958 by Elizabeth George Spear, which was based on the story of the accused witches in Wethersfield. Or indeed, Curse of the Fairfield Witch by Paul Ferrante in uh, 2006, 7, 8? I'm not sure when he published it. I'm pretty sure it takes place in 2011 or 2012. Oh, it's right before Sandy. Yeah, there's a hurricane, so. But uh, Connecticut doesn't and really will never have the same witch recognition that Salem does, despite being the first in the game. So unlike the mobs of tourists visiting Salem this Halloween, perhaps this October I'll take a trip to Edwards Pond, which will likely be unvisited, and think of the dark, sad things that happened in our home state centuries ago, and how it's really not as far away as it feels. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Let's take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. With some searing relevance to this week's story. Yeah, Sean, we always do this crazily after we decided to do the Connecticut witch trials as our subject this week. The push to officially exonerate victims of the trials has been renewed this week. Well, it was uh, sort of renewed back in June, but but it's really getting some media attention this week. As it should. Connecticut Insider writers, um, sorry, Connecticut Insider writes that the Connecticut Witch Trials Exoneration Project, which can be found at ConnecticutWitchTrials.wordpress.com, is making an effort to recognize the victims of the trials and receive official exoneration. They have a petition making the rounds on Change.org. And so far, it has received at least 1,200 signatures in favor of exoneration. 
Exoneration Project member Mary Bingham told the insider that the group has been working with state rep Jane Garibay to get trial victims' names cleared posthumously. As we know, the last accused Salem witch was only exonerated just recently, with most having been so in previous decades. However, none of the Connecticut accused have received the same opportunity, though some towns have taken it upon themselves to exonerate on a local level. And this one example is the Windsor Town Council with Alice Young and Lydia Gilbert being exonerated in Windsor. And I don't know of any others that have done it in Connecticut, although... Again, the Stratford Historical Society, who I mentioned earlier, uh, are planning on having a celebration of Goody Bassett in this May and every May uh, thereafter to exonerate her, at least in town. I hope we have like a witch parade every May. Oh my God, that would be so cool. Well, I know there will be ice cream there. Obviously. Exoneration Project member and host of the Thou Shalt Not Suffer podcast, Josh Hutchinson, told Insider, quote, It's something that's important to the descendants and would have been important to the individuals themselves and their immediate families if something had been done at the time. We've allowed 375 years to go by since Alice Young was the first person to be hanged in 1647 without acknowledging that the Connecticut witch trials have been forgotten about largely until the last decade or so. Uh, I spoke to Josh today in my other job, actually, and he's a very uh, nice and knowledgeable guy. He doesn't live here. He's just passionate about this issue. He's actually descended from both accusers and accused uh, in the Salem witch trials. Yeah, and that's how that went. Everyone was related. Everyone knew each other. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast, which is apparently all about witch trials. So I'll go down that rabbit hole for sure. And maybe we'll even <laughs> uh, maybe we'll even convince Josh and Sarah to come and come and chat with us about all this stuff. That would be wonderful. And I would say, Sean, that we very much agree with Josh's point and the point of exoneration. It's the very least the state could do for those victimized here so many years ago. For more on the Connecticut Witch Trials Exoneration Project, visit ConnecticutWitchTrials.wordpress.com and go sign the petition at change.org. Let's get this going. Absolutely. It really is, as you say, the, the very least we can do. The very least. And I think this is a story that should be told and remembered for what it was, which is the senseless murder of 11 people, the ostracization of of, uh, dozens more, right? We can't forget that these people were murdered. And it doesn't matter that it was 400 years ago. We still owe their, their good names something. And we owe it to ourselves to remember what kind of superstition and scapegoating can do. Exactly. If you exonerate you're saying this was fake this was not real these people were murdered and it's a warning to yourself because if we forget about our history we're doomed to repeat it and you know that that would be very bad in this case yeah because i'm not going to stop wearing those crocs i mean eccentric yeah and i'm not going to stop being a witch so there we go That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. Our patrons voted on the genre of our episode this week, so you can get in on fun stuff like that too over there. You can call us and leave us a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. 
And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, and special thanks to those who do support us over on Patreon. Uh, Our top-tier patrons are Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. Thank you, guys. We love you very, very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, which is called Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.